the Grace Through Recovery podcast. My name is Andrea. I'm a licensed professional counselor and a person in long-term recovery. So if you joined me last week, I shared about my experience leading a family recovery group at my job and really how it is my most favorite part of my job. I really love being able to see entire family dynamics shift and how everyone in the family can become the best versions of themselves when they put the work into their healing and growth and recovery. And just being able to be a part of that space is incredibly inspiring for me. And it just, um, you know, really makes me so hopeful and excited for the people who participate for their future. I shared the first part of my lecture on common mistakes we see family members make in last week's episode, so if you haven't listened to that one, be sure to check it out. And this is going to be part two of that lecture today. So often when new family members join my group, you know, I see that they are exhausted and scared, angry, hopeful, everything in between, because early recovery is like that. It's just a roller coaster of emotions. And I think the family member really gets lost during the act of addiction. You know, everyone's lives becomes about the addicted person. They become the star of the show. Everything we do is to make sure that they're safe, that everyone else is safe, potentially to clean up the aftermath. And so as family members, we learn to push our emotions down because there isn't time for them. We learn how to compartmentalize and how to numb, so when a loved one gets to treatment or starts their recovery journey, all our emotions flood to the surface. It's like, you know, it's like we can breathe again and also that we're holding our breath at all times. So I really love to offer that group as a space where we can express our feelings and share and relate to each other, and I hope that this podcast is doing that as well. Also, what I see is that the family member wants to do everything they can to help their person, their loved one, the addicted one who's struggling to get sober, and that they have really been doing that for years. But sometimes, even with the best of intentions, our actions can negatively impact recovery without us really meaning to. So the first stumble or mistake I want to talk about today is this idea of sobriety being a short-term solution. I hear from families a lot this idea that the addicted person just needs to go to detox or to treatment for 30 days and dry out or, you know, take a little bit of time off from their drinking or using, and then they can go back to living the way they were before. Or there's this idea that somewhere in the future they can return to drinking moderately or remain abstinent without continued care. But we know substance use disorders are chronic and progressive illnesses, which require lifetime care. And sometimes I know this can really be painful to hear and hard to accept. And I don't say this, you know, as any sort of doom and gloom diagnosis or as a, quote, life sentence, but rather a way of understanding what we're dealing with and really as a way to level our expectations. You know, we're really bound to be disappointed if we expect a person to not struggle in the beginning or to immediately, or if, you know, if we expect them to immediately find peace and happiness, I think we're going to be disappointed. 
addiction can absolutely be put into remission. And a big part of that, I think, is understanding the severity of the illness and no longer living in denial. And for me, breaking free of the denial really provided me more freedom and peace than continuing to live in the sort of space of wishes and hopes, which I was doing before. So really beginning to understand that the brain needs time away from substances to begin healing. And not just time, but counseling, support, connection, education. We need all of those things. So the medications, you know, so to speak, for putting addiction into remission could look like 12-step support meetings or other support groups, getting a sponsor and working the 12 steps, finding a mentor in recovery, participating in long-term therapy groups, participating in random drug screening, participating in individual and family therapy, actual medications, um, and then knowing that the medications are actually able to work because their efficacy isn't being impacted by substance use, right? Other things could be exercise, self-care, diet, you know, you get the idea, a balanced way of living. And I just like to put in a little, a little side note about drug screening because I often see family members sort of want to keep a stash of drug screens at home or our clients say, well, my family member can drug test me at home anytime they want to. And, you know, we really recommend against that. Um, it's so easy to set up a random drug screening through a third party lab. Um, and when the family is doing the drug screening at home, it really takes you out of your role as mom or dad or brother or sister, whatever your role is. It takes you out of that and in, into a more monitor or probation officer type role. And I think that really violates boundaries and impedes healing. And so for the family member to understand that this is a lifelong journey for you as well. Right? It's not enough for your loved one to get sober. It's not that them getting sober is going to magically make all the problems better. The problem isn't just the drinking and using. It's all of the unhealthy behaviors and thought patterns that this illness breeds. So if we don't address our own trauma and the way we have been impacted by this disease, we will continue to be fearful and frustrated even if our loved one is sober. So sometimes we also see family members unintentionally supporting active addiction rather than the recovery process. And one thing I love to say and to teach families to say, which is something I learned um, from a great therapist and friend of mine, is I will support you in recovery. I will not support you in your active addiction. And then really to learn what each of those looks like. This can be financial support, so maybe that's a willingness to pay for sober living, but not to pay for an apartment for someone to live in alone. Maybe it looks like stopping bailing someone out instead of paying their bills when they can't, or bailing them out of jail, or hiring the best attorney. Right, Because when we provide that soft landing place for someone, they have no reason to stop using. They know that we'll be there to enable them. And I think this is also a good time to mention, you know, we really don't want to set boundaries or give someone an ultimatum that we're unwilling to keep. 
Because when we do this, we teach others that we don't stick to our word and that they learn exactly what they can get away with. Support can also be emotional. So, for example, answering the phone when your loved one calls, but also being unwilling to speak to them when they're intoxicated. So supporting the act of addiction is also called enabling, right? Which I think we can simply define as doing something for someone else that they're capable of doing themselves. And we all deserve the dignity to face the consequences of our own behavior so we can learn and grow from them. And I think when we take that right away from others, we teach them to be stuck and helpless. And it creates this vicious cycle, right? We show up and we want to help and we want to fix and we want to support. That person gets the message that they can't do these things on their own, so they don't even try. And then they need help and support to sort of, you know, fix whatever mess they've gotten themselves into. So we swoop in and we fix and we control and we enable and they learn this and then we're around and around and around. So really being able to let go of that control release someone else, allow them to not only face the consequences, but also reap the benefits of their own behavior, I think is incredibly healing. So the last thing I want to talk about is families not understanding the importance of their own recovery. And I get it. You know, by the time I walked through the doors of Al-Anon for my first time, I was desperate. I recognized that I was engaging in a series of relationships that were dysfunctional in the same exact way my home growing up was dysfunctional. I found myself people-pleasing, I was putting others' needs above my own, and I was continuing to accept unacceptable behavior over and over again. And finally, I had to make the decision that I did not want to live like that anymore and choose to get help. And so unfortunately for me, you know, a lot of times that looks like being in so much pain that I can't stand it, that I have to do something different. So if you've never been to an Al-Anon meeting or NAR-Anon, Families Anonymous or Codependence Anonymous, I know it can be really scary to think about. And if you want more information on those support groups, I'll link that in the show notes for this episode. You know, I think we get this idea that no one will understand us or not want to share what we have been through out of shame and embarrassment, but I knew for me that if I did not do something differently, I would continue to live out the same unhealthy family dynamics over and over. And I'm worthy of breaking that cycle, and so are you. So through my own recovery, I have learned how to love myself. I have reparented myself and practice continual loving kindness with that inner child. I gained and continue to gain so much insight into my own behaviors and the negative impact they have on myself and those around me when I engage in those codependent behaviors. And that is also sort of my hope, you know, for this podcast to bring more awareness to those behaviors, to Um, addiction as a whole and addiction recovery. And I hope that even if you're not in a place of going to support meetings, that this is maybe a step in that direction for you or providing you some education and support now. A huge part of family recovery is self-care. We become so lost in the act of addiction that we start neglecting our own needs 
you know, from the most basic needs of personal hygiene, eating regularly, getting movement, doctor's appointments, to our own need for connection and to enjoy life. And I think it's so crucial for you to continue engaging in life and participating in activities that bring you joy and fun and laughter, whether your loved one continues using or not. You know, I really encourage you to start creating new traditions and memories together. And if your loved one doesn't want to be involved, it's important for you to continue living your life. You know, in the past, I've been tempted to stay home and isolate when my partner would rather stay home than go out, but I ended up resentful and miserable. Your life is worth living and enjoying, and it's up to you to make that possible. We also often see family members hold a belief that they must rebuild trust in order to be happy or to continue in a relationship. And this might sound wild, but I think there's too much emphasis put on rebuilding trust, especially in early recovery. So really, when we look at what trust is, it's an emotion, and we know that emotions come from our thoughts, right? So you and I may know the exact same person, but I may trust them and you don't, and that's just based on our thoughts about them. And we have had so many experiences in the active addiction of promises being broken, commitments not being followed through, finding out about lies and manipulation, that our brains become so focused on trying to pick out the lies, trying to prove someone wrong, that I think in early recovery, it's more about giving someone the benefit of the doubt, or even just letting go of the idea of trust putting the idea of trust or not trusting aside and just focusing on today. You know, really looking at what are the positive things that happened today? Did I like how I showed up today? Is there something I would want to do differently tomorrow? Keeping the focus on yourself and off your loved one leads us to serenity because we're not wasting time and energy trying to examine their day in every behavior and every word to monitor if we can trust them or not. We just take it as it comes and know that we can handle any situation that arises. I think sometimes we can also take someone's dishonesty too personally, you know, especially knowing that dishonesty is a part of this disease. It's like we've talked about before, the disease will lie to you to keep itself hidden so it can keep growing. And your loved one's lies are not about you. They're not because they don't love you or because they don't respect you. It can feel that way, absolutely. But the truth is, the lies are just about the addiction. And we know that's true because most of us wouldn't lie like that when sober. So we know that it's the addiction speaking and it's not our loved one who's struggling. And also, in addition to the lies, we can take all behaviors really personally, right? When generally, I think really... Nothing is personal to us. If someone is lying to us or judging us or manipulating us or showing up late or not calling us back or insert any behavior, that's about them. That's their thoughts, their emotions, and what's going on for them. It's not about you. One time I heard someone say, you may be the center of your universe, but you're not the center of everyone else's universe. 
So to wrap up part two of this series, I share these mistakes or missteps as an educational and informational way to help us all continue to gain and build insight into our behaviors and motivations. It's not at all to shame or sort of beat up on or anything like that, right? It's just more of these are the patterns I see that come along with this disease and to share those so maybe we can start to break them sooner and not engage in those behaviors. So I hope it gave you something to think about and you know if you've been in recovery for a while maybe look back at and be able to see it and acknowledge how far you've come. And if you're new to all this you know generally I find that the families I work with find this information to be helpful. They find that as they start incorporating these new behaviors, while of course uncomfortable, it's better than living in the discomfort of the unhealthy behaviors of the active addiction. So I hope that you found this helpful, and if you're finding value in this podcast and know others who might as well, please share this with them so they know they're not alone. And if you can relate to anything that's been shared or have any thoughts you'd like to share with me, I'd love to connect with you on Instagram at Grace Through Recovery. And as always, I hope you continue to remember how worthy you are of the gifts of recovery.